Listener Production. A warning, this podcast contains adult themes. The day after Mum's wake, I went and found the photo that was in the slideshow. The one of her, Michael Davies, and a newborn baby. I turned the photo over and it was time-stamped. August 1973. Mum would have been 17. Mum was the product of good old-fashioned Irish Catholic guilt, and the people around her had always adopted a don't-ask-and-don't-tell approach. So I knew the key to finding out what happened probably lay with Michael Davies. I knew nothing about this man. Other than that, he was once married to my mum. How would I even find him? And if I did, would he even talk to me? I'm Amelia Robahart, and I'm a journalist from Brisbane. This is Secrets We Keep, Shame Lies and Family. Twelve years ago, after my mum's death, I realised I never really knew her at all. On my journey to find out more about her, I opened a door to a world I never thought I'd find myself exploring. It was a time in Australian history where women across the country were forced to keep secrets. I hoped trying to understand these secrets could help me understand my mum. Not long after my mum had died in 2011, I began trying to find Michael Davies. I'd gone through the white pages, but there was hundreds of M Davies living in Queensland. And that was assuming he even lived in Queensland. I'd looked on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, nothing. Google searches, it was all the same. Without knowing where he actually lived or his exact age, it was like searching for a needle in a haystack. When we started clearing out Mum's house, I got heaps of boxes of her things. She'd held on to everything, school yearbooks, preschool report cards, and many, many photo albums. She was super particular about her photo albums. She took meticulous detail in labeling everything. Stuck to the inside back page of one of those albums was this giant photo of her as a teenager in what looked like a wedding dress. When I took it out and turned it over, it was also time-stamped, 1973. The same year as that photo with the baby. I started to wonder if this was the photo from Mum and Michael's wedding. I knew the wedding had happened thanks to Dad and Joe Mathers, Mum's best mate who you heard from in the last episode. I also knew there was an annulment, but this is the first time I'd ever seen evidence of the actual wedding. In another photo album, I'd found pictures of a young man, and that must have been Michael Davies, and photos of the baby, the same baby from the photo at the wake. The baby was wearing a white gown, and it looked a lot like a baptism. Michael was there, holding the baby in different pictures, and what I assumed was his family. But weirdly, there was no pictures of my mum. Knowing her and how sentimental she was, and how much her family loved a baptism, I did find it strange. Why wasn't she in any of those pictures? And why'd she hold on to the album for all those years? Over the years, I've asked so many questions about mum, Michael and the baby. And I've gotten very few answers. Joe, mum's best mate, didn't have the full story and neither did dad. I'd tell friends, colleagues or acquaintances the story and we'd hypothesise for hours. They were as interested as I was about what had happened to my mum. 
But what shocked me the most was that everyone would say they knew someone with a similar story to mine. A friend, an auntie, a sister, sometimes their own mum. Stories about unplanned pregnancies, babies taken from their mothers and given to other families, or rearranged within their own families, and then reappearing decades later. And many would say, just look at the time, look at everything that was going on then, and how women were treated in the 1960s and early 1970s, right here in Australia. Are you a part of the love generation? Yes. Do you love me? Yes, I love everybody. Is it possible to love everybody? Yes. Free love and the sexual revolution may be what comes to mind when you think about these two decades. There's a lot more happening, but there's nothing wrong with just sex for sex. These themes were partially imported from the US and partially homegrown, but at the same time, incredibly rigid rules around sex and relationships persisted. A lot of these women are the wives of business executives. This homemaker's course grooms them to help in their husbands' careers from the discreet background of home and family. And in fact, one young man went so far as to say that if real and complete equality of the sexes came about, the whole structure of our society as we know it would collapse. Especially here in Queensland, where Mum was born and lived most of her life. I thought if I dived into these times a little more, I could get better context about what she'd lived through. OK. So... Jan, Dad's wife, Mark Oberhardt's wife. Someone who I knew could talk articulately about these times was Jan Oberhardt. She's now married to my dad. Brisbane being the big old country town it is, Jan and Mum did know each other, but they'd led pretty separate lives. Over the years, Jan and I had had plenty of conversations about what her life was like back then. I was 15 in 1970, in year 10, and that's when I started to take notice of various things. Jan's a country girl at heart. She was sent to an all-girls school in Brisbane to board for high school. Brisbane was a very different place to Western Queensland, but she says the values and virtues were basically the same. She remembers vividly what it was like to be a young woman at that time. It was a time where our parents were very staid. Most of the parents that I knew through friends and incredibly stayed. Stayed means you're pretty straight-laced. They weren't just 20th century values that they were teaching us, really. They were almost like 19th century values, backed up by the schools, that girls were just little virgins and, and that was how their life was to be lived until they were married. Many Australian women during this time were expected to build their entire lives around marriage is something which completely dominates their ideas. A job is something just for biding time before they, they get married. The majority of women here started their working lives in business. Now, they're more important to their husbands' careers, learning about table settings than the intricacies of office management. In between each second mouthful of food that you take, you should have a sip of wine, and there is a correct and an incorrect way to hold a glass. This concept of a nuclear family was built into our social fabric. It was the hangover of the post-war period, and it was rooted in archaic gender norms. These days, Mrs Burton has the table set at 10 o'clock in the morning for tonight's dinner party. But there was a time when she didn't manage so well. The breadwinner man, the housewife and mum, and of course the children. 
everyone living in tidy, neat homes with white picket fences. The nuclear family was sort of really regarded as a way that families would achieve happiness and kind of privacy and stability. That's Michelle Arrow, a professor of modern history at Macquarie University. She's written the book on this period of time called The 70s, The Personal, The Political and The Making of Modern Australia. And you sort of did it without thinking about it necessarily. It was just the way you should live, that everybody would live the same way. In the 1971 Australian census, 75% of the population aged over 15 reported they were married or had been previously married. And women were getting married young. To be 25 and unmarried was probably reasonably unusual in that period. Like, you're getting married in your early 20s and you probably had all your children by the time you're, like, early 30s. Michelle says around this time, sex in marriage was seen as a normal, healthy part of a relationship. But if you went against the grain and had some sort of relationship where you were having sex outside of marriage... You're the worst sort of person imaginable. So it's a, it's a very weird sort of paradox that it's, sex is really important and yet it's really stigmatised. It's only permissible within this sort of, you know, particular relationship. Sex outside of marriage was a shameful act. Girls that have sex before they get married are terrible people or they've let themselves down or they've, you know, kind of breached these moral codes. Having children born out of wedlock was so taboo that the Australian census in 1971, which was a snapshot of the country at the time, didn't even ask the question. The census had asked every Australian mother which marriage the child was born from, effectively erasing the existence of children born outside of marriage. And for women, of course, the sense that, yeah, you've had sex before marriage, like you can see because you're pregnant. For women, they literally wear it on their bodies, you know, and it's just that sort of sense of the sort of stigma of unmarried sex. You know, you just can't do it until you're married. And if you did, well, you have to bear this burden of shame. And it's such a, yeah, it's such a weird, terrible thing to warp somebody's sense of self like that, because I think it did really warp people's sense of self and self-esteem. These rigid rules around sex and family ideals and structures bled into other areas of life. For example, sex education. Sex education in schools was either minimal or virtually non-existent. Everything was hushed, especially at Jan's all-girls private school. We'd had no health studies, no tutoring in anything to do with sexuality, health, nothing. There's a wealth of evidence today that shows the importance of sex education. These days, it focuses on puberty and changing relationships, practices that support reproductive and sexual health, and learning about consent and understanding the harm that can be caused when consent is ignored. But back then, women were just ushered towards marriage with little to no concept of sex or sexual or reproductive health. The big irony is that the pill had in fact arrived on Australian shores way back in 1961. The pill was a really important contraceptive method for women because it meant that women could control it. They didn't have to rely on the cooperation of a male partner in order to prevent pregnancy. The introduction of the pill was seismic. The Australian Women's Weekly called it the greatest medical controversy of this generation. And it's easy to see why. Here was a potential for women who chose to have sex outside of marriage, 
or for women in relationships that weren't defined by marriage to have autonomy over their bodies. Take a pill that helps you make a choice about when you want to have a baby. The catch? It was tough to get your hands on. The pill was aimed at married women as a way for them to plan their families. It was incredibly difficult if you were a single woman to access the pill. Jan says there was this feeling you couldn't just go to your family doctor and ask for the pill because you'd feel like you were being judged. Even though sensibly we talked amongst ourselves and thought that, you know, maybe it wasn't a bad idea, but nobody would do that. I can only imagine how frustrating and devastating this must have felt for women, especially if you'd fallen pregnant out of wedlock, because your options after that, they were incredibly limited. I suppose you could have the baby and marry the father, the classic shotgun wedding, you know, you kind of married before the baby was born to avoid the kind of embarrassment of having a baby out of marriage. There was a lot of shame and stigma attached to something like that. But I think a lot of women who got pregnant and weren't really able to either marry the father or to have an abortion, the other option would be to go away somewhere to an unwed mother's home or a nursing mother's home, have the baby and, and then give it up for adoption. This is what people had been talking about when they said they'd heard stories like mine. They'd known someone in their lives who'd been pregnant out of wedlock or had a baby forcibly taken away from them. I started to place my mum in this picture, but not just my mum, all the women this had happened to. It was the story of an entire generation. To use Jan's word, the staidness of the early 60s and 70s was being challenged in more ways than one. In the 1970s, women emerge as a political sort of force. Gay and lesbian rights movement, so the emergence of, of gay and lesbian activists who kind of say, look, we deserve not to be discriminated against for our sexuality. It's the kind of emergence of the idea that there was more than one way to live. For those women's liberation groups in particular, they got a massive win in December 1972 when Prime Minister Gough Whitlam was elected. It's clear that we, we won uh, handsomely in New South Wales and Victoria. The Whitlam government acted fast on some of the demands of the women's movement, including appointing a women's affairs advisor to the Prime Minister. That was a world first. We women will no longer be relegated to a secondary place when hard politics are being discussed. Michelle Arrow says this marked the start of a shift that would carry across the decade. On the one hand, there was kind of quite a lot happening because Australia had sort of deferred making a lot of social policy changes and the kinds of changes that were more reflective of a contemporary, you know, a modern society. And socially, there's a lot of change because you're kind of coming off the back of the sexual revolution, off the back of the women's movement and the kind of transformations that were associated with those movements. And Australia was trying to kind of come to terms with what all that change might mean. So it was a change, I think, of both on the grand national political scale, but also in people's intimate everyday lives. When Jen headed off to uni in 1973, she definitely felt this shift. As a young woman from a super strict and conservative school, it was a massive culture shock. It was like a revolution. Music was rock and roll, out, you know, out of control almost. There was this sense of eroticism 
because everywhere you went, there were bands playing and there, it was music and everyone was dancing. And you had all these boys, so they were all running around, you know, on heat almost. <laughs> Girls just had no idea how to deal with this sort of thing. We weren't taught about consent and about how, what was the best way to say no, that kind of thing. Lucky for Jan, now she was at uni, she could access the pill. We were told, you know, to go to the university medical centre and the pill was available there and so on. And so we knew that that was available, but if you hadn't gone to university, it would have been terribly difficult. And it would have been worse for Catholic girls because not only would the parents have known the doctor, but the doctor would have been following Catholic values and they wouldn't have been very interested in giving girls the pill anyway. I wish I could have talked to my mum about this time in her life, how she felt about the social and cultural pressures of the 60s and what she really thought about the changing times of the 70s. What did it mean for women and the women in her life too? Whether it influenced any decisions that she made and if it was today, would things have been any different? Last year, as I do, I was talking to colleagues about my story. They told me it could be a podcast, that it had the potential to help other women as well as helping me on my own path. Making this into a podcast had reignited my search for Michael Davies, the man from the photo. I knew I needed to find him, and I thought a marriage certificate could help me narrow my search down. So I headed to the most obvious place, birth, deaths and marriages, with a bunch of documents of mums. Just getting in the car now to um, drive to births, deaths and marriages. Um, I've got all the documentation, the death certificate, um, her birth certificate, which was reprinted in 1973 for some reason. Um, my All my documentation, hoping that um, it's enough to be able to access her information. I am uh, nervous. I am feeling that, you know, it could be disappointing. Um, it could also be, you know, cathartic. The nice woman there had done her best to help me, but she couldn't release records unless I had death certificates for both parties, which obviously I didn't. I got the inkling she felt a bit sorry for me. She sort of winked and nudged at me and told me I could check out a church in Mitchelton. Mitchelton is a suburb just northwest of Brisbane, and I immediately knew that church would be Our Lady of Dollars. It's the local parish there, but more importantly, it was Mum's family church. The church was just how I remembered. Driving up there, it gave me the weirdest feeling. It took me back to my childhood, where I'd go to church with my grandparents sometimes two or three times a week. After doing laps around the big old brick building, I ran into a groundskeeper. He told me that the parish had now been combined with Grove Lee, which was just down the road. So I drove there and the lady at the parish office told me I needed to put in an email everything I needed and they'd get back to me. A few weeks later, I got an email back from the parish. It was blank with nothing but an attachment. It was the marriage certificate. Under the heading Bridegroom, there was Michael Davies and a middle name and an occupation and there was his date of birth. There was also the date of the wedding, the 9th of February, 1973, at Our Lady of Dollars, Mitchelton. 
The photo of the baby was dated August 1973. So it made sense that if the baby in the photo was her baby, mum would have been just a few months pregnant when she got married. Now that I had more details about Michael Davies, I just needed a concrete way of getting a hold of him. I asked my podcast producer, Ellen Lee Beater, to help me and to see what she could find. A few weeks later, Ellen came back to me. We have done some digging and we found a Michael Davies in Queensland, date of birth. Oh my God, that's him. Oh God, it's giving me tingles in my fingers. So I've got an email address and a phone number as well. So I can send all this to you. Yeah. Oh, my God. I spent that whole weekend thinking about what to do. In truth, I thought about nothing else. How would I approach it? What would he say? Hypothesising all of the things that could potentially go wrong and whether or not it was even the right thing to do. On the Monday, Ellen and I spoke again about a plan. I've been told I'm an external processor which I think is just a nice way of people saying I say every thought I have out aloud. And by this point, I was certainly thinking out aloud. You know, he may have his whole family sitting around him. He may have his wife there. He may, you know, if you just launch into it, I think that's not very nice. So I was thinking of saying like, hi, um, I was just wondering if, you know, is this Michael Davies? Launch into it and he's sitting with his family. You know, you've got to give him a minute to go, yeah, actually, I have got a couple of minutes or can I call you back in five or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Like, he might also be at work because it's a Monday morning. All right, well, why don't I just call him and then I'll call you back. Okay. Good luck. Oh, hi. Is this Michael Davies? Hi, my name's um, Amelia. I'm wondering if uh, you might be the Michael Davies that was once married to my mum. Next time on Secrets We Keep. So he was happy for us to come and see him? Yeah, he's been really receptive the whole time. He's got a box of photos. He doesn't seem weirded out that this 37-year-old daughter of his ex-wife is flying to Cairns to come and see him. I might finally get the answers I've been looking for. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. The extract of Elizabeth Reed that you heard is from the International Women's Year Conference in Mexico City in 1975. It comes from the film Mexico 75, produced and directed by Patricia Edgar. All other archive materials supplied by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales. Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Oberhart. Producer, Jake Morecambe. Production assistants, Romy Scher and Bonnie Lavelle. Fact-checking by Bensian Siebert. Sound design and mix by Nao Fernandez. Executive producer is Ellen Liebeter. With thanks to Tara Cassidy and Claire Weaver. Natasha Jobson is our head of news ops and Melanie Withnall, the head of news and information. If you've enjoyed the series so far, you can leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe and follow Secrets We Keep to stay up to date.